Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a supporter of this program and or crossexamined.org, if you're a supporter either financially or prayerfully, you and I just received a big honor. And this honor has been a secret for about four years. It was revealed on November 4th, Saturday, November 4th, at the end of the Unshaken Conference that Elisa Childers and Natasha Crane and I were conducting near Nashville, Tennessee. The conference had just about ended. We had just finished our final Q&A session, and I was sitting on stage with Natasha and Elisa and our moderator. Her name was Joy. It was about to end. We're about to get up and leave. And Joy said, uh, please remain seated. We have a short video that we all want you to watch and we don't want you to miss it. It was a video by my guest today, Professor Clark Bates. He is a New Testament scholar at Forge Theological Seminary. And he's about to get his PhD at the University of Birmingham in the UK, where he is coming to us right now. And uh, he revealed this honor that is not just an honor to me, but it's an honor to you as well as in a support as a supporter. It's kind of hard for me to talk about this uh, because the proverb says, uh, "Just let somebody else praise you, not your own lips." So uh, I'm going to bring Clark on. Clark was the mastermind behind this honor. Uh, Clark, first of all, thanks for what you've done, and also thank you for being on the program today. Um, maybe you could just kind of summarize what was said in that video, and then then we can get into actually the book that you helped edit and you, and you wrote uh, a chapter in. So, Clark, go Absolutely. ahead, sir. Yeah, thank you, Frank, and, and again, thank you for everything you've done. That's kind of the whole point behind this is uh, to kind of pay tribute to you. And uh, what happened sort of at Unshaken was we presented this book, and I've got a copy here so people can see it. It's called Faith Examined. Uh, the subtitle is The New Arguments for Persistent Questions, Essays in Honor of Dr. Frank Turek. And uh, like Frank said, about four years ago is when this started. It was about 2019. And I got a hold of Elisa Childers and a few other apologists uh, that had all attended Frank's Cross-Examined Instructors Academy, which you've heard him talk about, the CIA Academy. It's been going on for quite a few years, with the idea that we should do something for Frank, for all the things that he's done for us, uh, for just the church in general, for the, the kingdom of God, uh, something that reflects the importance that he has had in our lives and that shows people uh, a little bit more about him. Uh, and so we started collaborating on this book. Everybody I talked to had uh, jumped on the chance. I, I can't even say that uh, more emphatically. They jumped on the chance to do this, to, to contribute a chapter in their particular specialty. And 
we set out getting a book uh, deal, finding a publisher and all these things. That happened started about 2019. Hmm. Of course, then COVID hit. <laughs> right. And a lot of things got put on pause, but we still kept working on it. And, uh, and finally, I'm happy to say it came to fruition now. Uh, and it's just really, it's a culmination of a lot of, a lot of work, but a lot of labor of love at the same time. And uh, we wanted it to reflect not just the uh, strengths of, of the CIA and what it does, but also kind of in a way reflect how Frank reaches a different groups of people. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. In some ways, I can say it's turned out better than I thought it would, uh, only insofar as the, the chapters are fantastic and they're diverse. We've got so many different people that contributed, uh, you know, different cultural backgrounds, different, uh, <laughs> different genders, different theological perspectives, but we all share in this one, uh, these two things that we share in the love of the gospel and we share uh, our love for Frank and what he's done. And he's fed into everybody who contributed to this book. And this was our chance to feed back into you and to, and to share with everybody else how we feel uh, about well, you. And I think as you see the book, obviously everybody's given a little bit of a tribute in their first footnote to you as well. So. Well, I'm, I'm so honored by it. Uh, and I've been told long ago, look, everyone has different gifts that they can contribute to the body. If somebody compliments you on the gift you've been using, all you do is say thank you. So thank you. But I also do want to point out that CIA, the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, I'm actually only a small part of CIA, as, as all of you know who have been there. I just had the idea when we started Cross-Examined, I just wanted to try and and get the top apologists together to train people on how to better present the evidence for Christianity in a winsome and uh, effective way. And so the first person I called, of course, was my friend Greg Kokel because of his uh, great work in tactics. And that was even before his book came out. I just knew that he he was good in teaching tactics uh, from like a PDF and a DVD series. And then, of course, Brett Kunkel. And people over the years have joined uh, the the teaching team. In fact, two of them were on stage that night, That's Elisa right. Childers and Natasha Crane. They both went through CIA themselves. And then we, of course, had Jay Warner Wallace teach. We've had uh, Bobby Conway. We've had the great Jorge Gill, who helps produce this program. He's, in fact, he's, he's on with us right now. He wrote the introduction in this book. Uh, he's an instructor there. Uh, we've had... Um, who else... <laughs> I'm, I'm drawing a, a mind blank right now, Jorge. Right, so yeah, of course, the great, there. the great Richard Howe. We recently had, um, uh, uh, yeah, of course, Alan Parr. Uh, we've had all sorts of great instructors that uh, John Ferrer. We, of course, had Hillary Morgan Ferrer this year. I'm just a small part of the instructor team. CIA wouldn't be much if it was just me. And so this... This honor goes to them as well. It also goes to all the supporters listening to us right now because CIA would not exist uh, and neither would this podcast, neither would the TV show, neither would everything you see on social media. Uh, none of that, none of the courses would exist unless you supported us both financially and prayerfully. So this honor goes to all of our supporters, all of our colleagues everybody that has a part in making cross-examined what it is so friends if you've ever given to cross-examine you have helped launch the ministries of people who have written in this book not only clark uh but here are some of the people uh, sean mcdowell wrote the forward he's also a cross-examine uh in instructor 
Uh, William Suhu, Phil Fernandez, Alex McElroy, Eric Hernandez, Timothy Stratton, Elisa Childers, Eric Chabot, Clark, of course, Clark Bates, Melissa Doherty, and Natasha Crane. They all did, and of course, Jorge also wrote a introduction. They all had a part in this book because they all benefited from CIA, which means they benefited from the work that all those colleagues have done and also all the support that you, the listener, have given us. So, uh, Clark, how did you come up with this idea? Why did you even <laughs> decide to do it? I mean, this kind of out of left field, you know? Hey, let's yeah, write a book a about bit, CIA. It was a little bit. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. There's two kind of two streams of thought came together at one time. And as I said, it was around 2019 when this kind of came to me. At one point, it was when I, and hopefully I, it's, it's okay to mention this, but this was shortly yeah. after uh, Mike Adams had passed away. And you right. had delivered a, a very uh, personal uh, cross-examined podcast on that moment. Mm-hmm. And I had, at the time, I was living in Phoenix, and I had the habit of listening to that while I went grocery shopping because I have a large family. It took me you know, anywhere from an hour to do it. So it was a good time to, to do that. And as I was listening to it, I was I, if reflecting on the fact that this was one of the rare moments where people got to hear sort of your heart in certain things. And you're passionate about apologetics, but when it comes to your personal feelings and things like that, they, that's not something people get to see. And they and in some ways, they miss out on a really beautiful part of your ministry and, and your personality, if I can say that. Um, and I thought about that. Uh, that started to reflect, uh, sort of reflect for me. And it was at the same time I was part of a uh, Festschrift in, in, in the seminary, which for those that don't know, it's just a German word, which is a special writing for an academician to honor them. And so I wanted to do something like that for Frank that reflected his personality and what he does. Well, thanks so much, Clark. We're actually going to get into the contents of this book because there are arguments made in this book that I don't make. They're better than the ones I make. <laughs> so we're going to talk about them right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, 180 stations or so across the country. This is also a podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So if you miss an episode or you want to hear the midweek podcast, which is not broadcast on AFR, you've got to go wherever you get podcasts and look for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Today, we're talking to Professor Clark Bates, who was who really spearheaded a brand new book called Faith Examined and it's got some great chapters in it all from graduates of the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy people that you've heard of like Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane and Melissa Doherty and others and uh, we're going to talk a lot about the content here during the program I- I'm so blessed to Uh, be honored by this book and by extension you're honored by it as well if you're a supporter of this ministry Uh, but Clark uh, you mentioned kind of a fancy German word uh, that uh, I know it's called a festschrift how do you actually say that properly is it yeah just festschrift it's a celebratory writing (laughs) okay because i I know there's been i was part of one for dr geisler many years ago and also one for gary habermas um and uh Usually, you write those when the guy's about to die. <laughs> okay, so hopefully, I'm not that close. I'll be 62 here prophetic. in a couple of weeks, but you just you just never know. Uh, but uh, so it came together. You you had the idea, and and other people jumped in on it. How did you decide who would be a part of it, and and the topics? How did you decide the topics? 
Sure. Um, for those, and a lot of people know that uh, this is a great question. The CIA has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been I've been a part of it for t- two separate times, and then of course several other people have gone back for more, multiple occasions. One of the the first prerequisite I had in mind was they had to have been a member of CIA at some point. Uh, but the other one was that they had to have gone from CIA to either full time apologetic ministry or into an academic ministry of some some type in which they were still working with apologetic material and those sort of things. And of course, there's a few people that sort of, that stand out. Some I didn't know personally at all. Some were in the same CIA classes that I attended, and some I knew had gone to CIA after me, um, and some I had gone before me. I wanted to make sure it didn't just reflect when I was there, but tried to reflect multiple different years and different eras of CIA. So, of course, Phil Fernandez is one of the early uh, yes. attendees. CIA and the so great I Phil Fernandez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Phil, says, and, Phil, Phil and I are from New Jersey, and that's the way he talks. And he goes, "I know you're here just to hear my angelic voice." <laughs> He's great. <laughs> He's fantastic. And yeah, so uh-huh. I wanted, he was a, he was a, a big part of this, wanting to have him there. And, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, Elisa and I, uh, we actually met at CIA. It was both of our first times there. I'd not met Natasha, but she was familiar with Natasha. She had, I believe, come before us as well. And, and then several others were, again, friends and acquaintances, but then others were people I had seen. I, you know, I continue to follow what Cross-Examine does. I'm part of the sort of the CIA Facebook group, and so I can see who's come in and who's uh, been added to the roster, so to speak. And so I started reaching out, and uh, I actually had to cut the, uh, the limit. I had, I had to make a limit of how many people I could bring into this. And so uh, we, we settled with, with where we were at, with, I guess, 11 total contributors, and uh, Jorge included, and... Mm-hmm. And they kind of just came together. And it was nice because I knew that each of these people had something that was specific to them. They had a specialty. So we weren't all going to be saying the same things or repeating maybe old arguments that everybody had already heard. I wanted it to be new voices because uh, CIA, Frank, you and, and the people there have really raised up the next generation of apologists. And to varying degrees, they are known or unknown. And so I wanted to give voices to people who maybe weren't known and let people who were known also uh, have their say as what they what they do and what they uh, want to express to you. So it, it was sort of a multi-level requirement, but it, it did all come together in, in just exactly the way I think it should have. Well, you've got some amazing chapters in here. One is by William Sue Hu, who actually is someone who's very skilled in yeah. the area of abiogenesis, like where, the origin of life. I mean, he's he's almost like James Tor when you read his yeah, book. He's here. amazing. Yeah, yeah, he was incredible. And uh, and what he writes, I just I haven't completely completed this whole chapter yet. But when you read, you just look at some of his calculations, you walk away going, there is no way there's a naturalistic <laughs> explanation yeah. for this, at least not one that we can detect at this point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you and had just to, to let go through. Know, the yeah, illustrations in there. He drew those. Yeah, he drew these illustrations. The illustrations are entirely his. Wow. Uh, William was an incredible contributor. I, I can't sing his praises enough. He was. He's. He's a brilliant scientist, and and has this artistic ability as well. So it's 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 a fantastic chapter. The book is called Faith Examined. It's edited by Clark Bates. He's my guest today. It's new arguments for persistent questions, essays, and honors in honor of Dr. Frank Turk. Thank you so much, but also everyone who participated in in. in 
running CIA and all the donors that we have, because CIA does not pay for itself, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we put um, ministry money into that so we can train people to do what they're doing now. And all the people in this book are now involved in full-time ministry. And when you read this chapter from William Suhu, you're going to go, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. Then you have a chapter in here from Phil Fernandez. We already mentioned him. He does great work in the cosmological argument that you'll see when you read this book. Uh, also, Alex uh, McElroy, he's one of the early CIA yeah. graduates, and he talks about a life well lived, sustaining value in a battle of worldviews. What can you tell us about that chapter? Yeah, I, this was so great to do. Alex has uh, been a friend for a while, well, since CIA, and he's mm -hmm. I've helped worked with him on his Proof for Truth conference. He works with uh, youth in Chicago. He does. Uh, he's been just tireless with working with young people, young men especially in Chicago, and trying to give them uh, meaning and value. And he's really a great example of how apologetics can be done in a in a ministry devotional oriented way and and apply it to life. So it's not just for Alex. It's not just uh, technical details and information it is it is things that help you have a motivation for life and he does this with young people and he tries to give them uh value and show them where the value comes from uh, so they can find a future for themselves and uh he just really does a wonderful job of weaving in together some basic almost it's almost like an introduction to logic uh, uh -huh. This chapter it gives you all sorts of so uh, details about different logical theories, different um, uh, faulty premises, faulty presuppositions, and walks you through how sustaining a value in your life really has to come from God. And there's no there's no way around that. You can artificially create value, but it's it's artificial, and you know it is. So mm -hmm. he starts to talking about really tapping into what this true value is and where it comes from. And like I said, and, and it opens up our, our sort of sh section on philosophy and it's a great way to do it because everything that he talks about unintentionally, this was not planned, but everything mm. he talks about sort of gets brought up again in Eric Hernandez's chapter and Tim Stratton's chapter in various ways. And so if you read Alex's, you know enough at the basic level that by the time you get to Eric and Tim, you're already on the way to understanding the people they're talking about and some of the concepts they bring in. Yeah. The sections of Faith Examined, the new book, there, there are four basic sections. The first is science. The second is philosophy. The third is the Bible. And the fourth is the church. And uh, so you're going to get a wide uh, range of chapters on a wide range of subjects that will help you not only encourage you in your own faith, but give you tools to help other people learn the truth of Christianity. Uh, then you have a article, or I keep calling it an article, it's really a chapter, an essay, if you will, from Eric Hernandez. And the title of that is, I don't have enough faith to be a phys physicalist, a case for the soul. What does he cover title. in there? What do you, yeah, it is. It's a great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if anybody's familiar with Eric's work, mm -hmm. he works with the um, Texas Baptist Association. Yep. He's their sort of director of apologetics there. And uh, you know his his wheelhouse is the soul and and arguing for the existence of the soul. He's been debating atheists on the existence of the soul for years now, uh, and that's his his entire premise. He wants to put uh, naturalism against metaphysicalism and wants to show that the, just the premise that we are nothing more than our body, where our brain is all there is, there is no mind behind it, there's no soul inside. Mm. He wants to show how that cannot be sustained with what we know about about life, about ourself, mm. and even just philosophically. And there's some science in there too, but it's primarily from a philosophical angle. And it's, it's really good. It's really good arguments uh, from 
an area that a lot of people probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, so it can it can really equip uh, believers, other apologists, on how to discuss the existence of the soul, what it says in the Bible, what it says uh, in philosophy, and and how it stands up against the idea of sort of just physicalism or naturalism as it is. Yeah, this is one of the biggest faults, uh, intellectual faults in atheism and materialism today. And that is, if you deny that you have a soul, if you deny that you have a mind, if you think you're just a molecular machine, a moist robot, as we've talked about many times on this program, you have no warrant to know anything, including the idea that you are just a, a, a blob of tissue. You're, you, know, you couldn't even know atheism were true. It, it, it's, it's a self-defeating ideology that prevents you from reasoning. But since we can reason... Uh, we ought to argue from this effect, the ability we have to reason back to a cause. And w the cause isn't just molecules bumping into one another. The cause must be some sort of mind that we're, our minds are patterned after. As, yeah. as uh, Philip Johnson famously said, uh, the best explanation is that our mind is patterned after the great mind, hmm. uh, the mind known as God. And that's what Eric points out in this chapter in Faith Examined. Uh, I just... You're right, Clark. I, I don't see people thinking about this enough. No. I mean, no. C.S. Lewis <laughs> talked about it quite a bit. In, in yep. Was that the problem of pain or was that... Um, I can't yeah, remember. Not, it could have been Abolition of Man. I'm not sure. It could have been Abolition. Yeah, it's one of his main Lewis. books. <laughs> yeah, where he talks about the problem of materialism. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is what this is. If materialism's true, there's no way of knowing it's true because every thought you have is the result of just physics. So yeah. why should you even think it's true? But since yeah. we can know certain things are true, we ought to reason back to the cause of why we can know certain things are true. It's not just molecules bumping into one another. And then yeah. a great um, chapter here by Timothy Stratton, who's also a cross -examined, on the cross-examined apologetics team. You'll see some of his videos on our YouTube channel. Yeah. Has to do with apologetics and Molinism, the apologetic appeal of Molinism, even for non-Molinists. What? Yeah, what? what's he doing you know, there? Everybody is, and it's that's knows Tim or is Larry's listened to him uh -huh. talk. Know that he's the evangelist of Molinism. Right. So uh, this is his bread and butter. He got his PhD in it, uh, and and he is going to spread the gospel of Molinism as uh -huh. far and as wide as he can. Uh, and so he's really in this realm. He wants to show that uh, that ultimately that apologists need to have many different tools in their tool belt, you know, and they, they need to be able to approach different skeptics that are coming from different positions. You know, there's no, no one size fits all apologetic approach uh, in my mind and having more tools to respond to questions is always going to be helpful. And this is one of Tim's tools. He wants you to know that you don't have to necessarily agree with it, but it is a good argument if you apply it well. Yeah. It deals with uh, predestination, free will, Calvinism, yep. all that. Uh, and that's what that chapter does. We've got a lot more coming up from the new book, Faith Examined, which you can get at Amazon. Faith Examined, edited by Clark R. Bates. He's my guest today, all the way from the UK. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, ladies and gentlemen. Frank Turek with you. My guest is Clark Bates. Before I get back to Clark, let me mention to you that uh, we've got our Digging Up the Bible archaeology series that we're going to be live streaming on YouTube and our website. Uh, it's going to be Monday nights. I think the next one is the Monday after Thanksgiving, if I'm not mistaken. It's, it'll start at 730 
uh, Eastern time. If you want to be a part of it, it will only be on YouTube for a short time after that. Yeah, the next one is November 27th. Then right after that, we have December 4th. Uh, that will be live streamed. And in between, I'll be, Lord willing, at Calvary Chapel, Tucson, December 2nd and 3rd for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Hope you can join me if you're anywhere near Tucson. Uh, and then later in December, I'll be out with my friend Charlie Kirk at and many other speakers at uh, America Fest. That's in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, go to tpusa.com. You can learn more about that. Today, I'm uh, talking to uh, Clark Bates, who has put together a wonderful book that, thankfully, uh, is has got better arguments than even I've come up with. Uh, and it's called Faith Examined. And before the break, Clark, one of the chapters was by Dr. Timothy Stratton on Molinism. We didn't have time to really describe what Molinism is. What is Molinism? Yeah. Yeah, so Molinism is essentially, it's a sort of an alternative uh, approach to salvation theory, uh, what we, we might call soteriology. Uh, it's an alternative to Calvinism or more Reformed theology approach mm-hmm. uh, approaches and deals with what is often termed as God's middle knowledge, or essentially the ability for God to know things that are what might call counterfactuals, things that could have happened in any given scenario. And so, from that wheelhouse, Tim is arguing uh, about salvation. He's arguing about God's knowledge. He's and he's pointing out that there are ways to understand God's foreknowledge, God's middle knowledge, and ultimately His sovereignty over life. Which is ultimately anybody that's done apologetics knows this will come up when you deal with any sort of skeptical approach. They're they're going to want to know about free will. They're going to want to know about God's sovereignty or determination, and this is one tool in which you can respond to that question. So Tim does great work in that. He has Free Thinking Ministries. Um, uh, just about the time you guys were talking about putting together this book in 2019, um, he and I did some work on some college campuses in Nebraska, hmm. and uh, so he actually spoke with me at one of those uh, events. So Tim does some great work out there. Then you have a great chapter, which I did have a chance to read by uh, my colleague, Elisa Childers, The Jesus Hermeneutic, Historical Method or Modern Heresy. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does she do in this chapter? Well, and a lot of people have gotten to know Elisa over the last few mm-hmm. years, which has been great. Know that she really is specializing in progressive Christianity, uh, as we see it kind of rising, particularly in the United States. Uh, and one of the people that she has to engage with quite a bit in her writing and in her speaking is a man named Richard Rohr. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this Jesus hermeneutic is a, is a methodology that Rohr promotes, and it really ultimately works against uh, what we find Jesus say in Scripture. Uh, but Rohr is a very convincing uh, Christian thinker, and mm-hmm. uh, he's a, he's a, more of a spiritualist in his uh, sort of his faith and the way he describes things. It's very appealing to a lot of uh, modern people, more of a new age theology, which is a very appealing thing to the, a lot of the world right now. And Elisa essentially just takes his words. She doesn't put words in his mouth. She takes his words from his writing, his arguments, uses the same scriptures that he applies in his book, and shows you how what he's doing with the Bible is actually twisting the words of Jesus outside of the way Jesus intended them. And so her argument is 
that whether this is even a hermeneutic at all is the is the Jesus hermeneutic really a a, a, a good hermeneutic or a hermeneutic that Jesus mm. would have used? And so it's a it's an excellent way to kind of dive into Scripture to see how Jesus thought of Scripture, what he thought of the Old Testament, and how to respond to people that really are infatuated with Richard Rohr. And he and I will say if you if you deal in any level of progressive Christianity, you will engage with Richard Rohr. He is everywhere. Yeah, as Elisa points out, uh, uh, Richard Rohr tries to say that Jesus kind of uh, refutes or Jesus doesn't agree with some of the hard teachings of the Old Testament, when in fact, Elisa points out, no, he does. In fact, let me just read this one little section. Uh, She says this in the chapter, again, the book is called Faith Examined. She says, Jesus affirmed that the scriptures were historically reliable. He continually referred to Old Testament characters as actual people who lived in real times and places throughout history. He spoke of Abel, Noah, Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, and Zechariah as all being these real people that lived... (laughs) Uh, in Old Testament times, so he affirmed the, and, uh, did I mention Jonah? She's got Jonah in there too. In fact, she says, in fact, he compared the history of the story of Jonah with the historicity of his own resurrection and an historical event that the Apostle Paul claimed could support or discredit all of Christianity based on its veracity. Right? That's, of course, from 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your face in vain. And yep. And... And Jesus actually compares his resurrection to Jonah in the heart of the great fish. So, yeah, despite what Richard Rohr says, uh, Elisa Childers has it right, and you can learn more about it in the book Faith Examined. And then Eric Chabot, my friend who uh, is the Ratio Christi director there at Ohio State, excuse me, the Ohio State University, where we go at least once a year. I was just there recently. Uh, his his chapter is about, does the re- resurrection of Jesus prove he is the Jewish Messiah? What's a nugget or two we can take away from this chapter? This was great. I, I really like this because this is, an, mm-hmm. this is a discussion that very few people have. And Eric is uh, uniquely situated to have it because he deals a lot with reaching out uh, to uh, Jewish people and Jewish believers. He's and a messianic Jew himself. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so he is... He is uh, a perfect person to have this. And we don't really think about this often. We just take for granted that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Right. Uh, and he brings up the point, something that he has to deal with all the time, is that as far as uh, your sort of modern uh, Jewish believers think, the, the resurrection isn't in the prophecies of the Messiah. So how mm. could how could he be the Messiah mm. if that's not one of the prophecies? And so Eric does a wonderful job of sort of analyzing this, showing you how there has been multiple different messianic uh possibilities in the t- in the history of the Jewish people, how there is scripture to support the resurrection of Jesus as being a messianic prophecy. It may be not as clear as some of the other ones, but it, the way he weaves together the different uh, discussions on the res- on what happens on the third day, the importance mm. of the third day mm. uh, in messianic history, uh, and how that applies to Jesus is really well done. And I think it'll bring a lot of people up to speed on a sort of an area they I doubt they've ever really thought about or read. And this is a great, great beginning for them, uh, for anybody that's not seen this. And if you have seen it, if you're familiar with it, he's got some great resources for you to keep digging into. Uh, other Jewish resources, uh, uh, Hebrew scholars that he is citing in this book would be great resources for you to read up on as well. Uh, as I always encourage people, if you read a chapter you like, find the footnotes, go find the books that they're citing, go read those books too. Just follow the rabbit trail and get more knowledge as you go.
Now, you've got a chapter I want to come back to. I want to jump ahead. Okay. So last segment, we'll deal with your chapter. Uh, when uh, Regarding the church, Melissa Doherty has a chapter called The Spiritual Sin of Pervading Christianity. What's she covering in there, Clark? So, in those, and those who aren't familiar with Melissa, she has a YouTube channel uh, that she's been growing. And she, she has an interesting story, an interesting testimony. Oh, yeah. She was a, a New Age believer many years ago and sort of came out of that. And she has a lot of experience in dealing with people in the New Age department. And so, the, the spiritual sin, we left it kind of a, a, a cryptic title. The spiritual sin pervading Christianity that she's dealing with ultimately comes down to this need for an emotional encounter with Jesus mm-hmm. or an emotional experience with God. And it's not that what we're not arguing, and she's very good about pointing this out, we're not arguing that having emotional emotions in church or or loving God with your your feelings with your emotions is wrong of course Jesus wants you to do that uh, you're love to love the Lord your God with all your heart you know this is one of those things that you are to do what she's pushing back against is the the idea that without that without that continual emotional experience that sort of spiritual high that you're somehow falling away from the faith or that you don't have that relationship with God and this the dam- really what she deals with is the damage that that sort of uh, trajectory can send you on this almost like you're seeking after a spiritual drug and I've seen it firsthand myself actually uh, as so as, as she has in in this book and it really is a thing that people the church needs to be aware of they need to be cautioned against and uh, and really hold it into balance hold we, we we need to walk this Christian life with that tension of our emotions and our our mind our loving God with all our heart and loving God with all our mind and not trying to sacrifice one for the other but learning how to walk with those in balance with each other because Christ is the fulfillment of both those things and uh, right. and yeah so she's helping us to try to keep an even keel if you will yeah, most of our viewers and listeners know who uh, Melissa is. She's She's been on the program several times. She's also a, a CAT member, Cross-Examined Apologetics Team. So she's got a lot of videos on our YouTube channel. And she was the one that really invited us to do the last CIA out there in Albuquerque mm. at the great Skip Heitzig's church, which... Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned Skip on this program before. His book, 30,000 Feet, or The Bible from 30,000 Feet, is a great book. I'm going through it myself now. We had him on the show just a couple of months ago about that. Uh, then you have the equally great Natasha Crane writing Raising Kids with Confident Faith in a Secular Culture. She's really good at this. What does she cover in here, yeah. Clark? Well, yeah, and obviously, everyone knows Natasha's wheelhouse is is sort of apologetics and parenting at the uh-huh. same time. And she, just like Alex, works with making apologetics uh, real for young people and how you can use this in real life. Natasha does the same thing for parents, and she does that by trying to show them the importance of not only being able to defend your faith, but raising your kids in this world, being able to defend your faith, and doing it in a way that's that's loving, but also a way that's going to grow them. She gives us uh, resources that you can go to, not just her own, not sort of her own books and her, her website, which she has, but other resources that you can go to to help plan uh, sort of a, a structure for your children, to help them slowly learn more and more confidence in, in their faith, and give them room to doubt. You know, we, we hear all about, you know, kids and young people and, and even older people that have deconverted because they had all these questions and no one ever let them ask questions or have doubts. And and Natasha really is encouraging us as parents, and I'm a parent as well, to allow our children to have those doubts with us and, and to be equipped to walk them through those and to answer those. And so this chapter, it's a great way to bring the book home so that everybody can really reflect on how do I, how do I act as an apologist even in my own house? Mm. Uh, not just 
on the stage or not just out at the university, but even in my own home, what can I do and how do I do that? So I thought it's just a really great way to sum it up in a way that sort of Alex brings us into it in the beginning. Natasha brings us back to it at the end. Yeah, parents, your kids are either going to be discipled by the iPhone or by you. Well, we know they're getting discipled by the iPhone. You better be really deliberate uh, to make sure that they're not being too uh, pulled too far away from Christianity based on that. And this book, this chapter in Faith Examined, edited by my guest today, Clark Bates, by Natasha Crane, will help you. All the other great chapters as well. When we come back, we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible, because that's what Clark uh, talks about in his chapter in the book. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network. Faith Examine, new arguments for persistent questions, essays in honor of yours truly, but also you as a supporter of this ministry, because the people that have written in this book uh, wouldn't have gotten to where they are today unless you had donated to Cross-Examined either financially or prayerfully. Uh, everyone who has contributed in this book is a graduate of the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, of which I'm just a part. Uh, and you helped fund that and continue to help fund that, including this entire ministry. And Clark Bates, uh, my guest today, is a professor who really put all this together, this book together. And we've gone through the individual chapters and I'm saving his chapter for last. Here is the chapter, the title. What do you mean by reliable? Navigating the question behind the question. What is the question behind the question, Clark? The question, question behind the question really is, can I trust the Bible? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, when it comes down to it, when someone asks you about the reliability of the Old Testament or the reliability of the New Testament, whether they mean historically or with the text itself, what they're really asking you is, can this book be a guide for my life? Is it mm. trustworthy? And we can easily get really bogged down in all these historical details. You know, we want to talk about archaeological discoveries, which are fantastic. We want to talk about the uh, reliability of the text, which it is. But we forget about the actual person asking the question and what they're really wanting to know. And so all of those arguments are very helpful. And I, I put some of those into the chapter mm -hmm. to help people understand that. But they're helpful only, in my opinion, as a means to get to the heart of the question, which is this book is the only trustworthy guide for your life, that what it contains, the story it contains, and the person it speaks about, Jesus, is the reliable one. And so, as long as we keep that as the focus, and we remember to continually go back to that, that's the, in my view, is the best way to use reliability arguments, is to always be pointing back to why they're asking you. Now, of course, other people might not, they might be just angry. <laughs> right. But, but really, you know, you, you do want to keep that heart for them mm -hmm. as a person in these conversations. You also point out that um, you, you quote Peter Williams, who's out there at mm. Tyndall House in Cambridge. Yeah. And you write this, you're quoting him, but this sentiment is true. He said, were it not for the many miraculous reports in the Gospels, most historians would be very happy to treat their accounts as generally historically reliable. This itself is no small thing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and and now it's you you writing. What often holds us uh, holds us most back from the story of Jesus, or them holding holding what holds ba- them back from the story of Jesus is their presupposed naturalism, not the actual reliability of the Bible. Yeah. Unpack that for us. Yeah, and, and Dr. Williams is it's just an incredible scholar. Anybody that's ever met him or listened mm-hmm. to him talk, he's uniquely gifted in what he does and defending the, the Bible. And uh, he and I agree on this. And it, it, the, real, the, the real objection isn't so much about whether or not the, the gospel writers existed, whether Mark wrote Mark or John wrote John. It's the idea that there could be a God who is sovereign, a God who expects something of us. There's a, the idea that there could be a t- eternal punishment for that there's such a thing as sin all these these metaphysical realities it's a it's a it's a rejection of those more than it is anything else and so one of the things that dr williams points out and and I, i i echo in the book is that if it didn't say anything about a resurrection if it didn't say anything about miraculous healings Nobody would challenge the Bible's historical mm. reliability at all. They would accept it as a historically ex- uh, reliable book. Even Bart Ehrman says it's historically reliable. He does not disagree with that. That's not where most people have the objection. The only reason they bring up those challenges is because of the spiritual question mm. that's actually being communicated. They yeah. don't want that to be true. Yeah, Ehrman, Ehrman wouldn't agree on the resurrection, but he would. No, but he agree. Uh, if you look at uh, what, his book on Did Jesus Exist, he, mm-hmm. he explicitly says that the historical details in the in the gospel narratives are accurate. Right. You know, yeah, there's right. no. He doesn't question that. Well, let me let me point out something else you say here too about these historical details because we go through it, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You go through some of those details here in the chapter in the book Faith Examined, but then you write this, and I want you to really unpack this because I think this is a very uh, a very interesting point you're making. You're saying these authors, meaning the New Testament authors would have to have demanded of themselves an attention to detail of historical matters down to the minutiae of every aspect in their stories only to invent miraculous healings and a physical resurrection that no Jewish writer prior had anticipated. They would have been the literary groundbreakers of their respective centuries and cultures. This hardly seems to be the most parsimonious of explanations even with the miraculous occurrences. Yeah. Un- unpack that further for us. What are you talking Certainly. about there? Yeah, you know, and this, of course, dealing with New Testament, specifically the gospel authors, right. too, is that, you know, when you look at just the, 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 the matter, the minute details of the gospels, the fact that they know all about the geography, the fact that they know all about the naming culture, the fact they know about the religious culture, the government, the botany, everything mm. I mean, topography they, all know, of it yeah it's it's unbelievable yeah. and it, it it means that they either had to have been there at that time or they had to have known someone who was there at that time and the thing for we have four gospel authors two of which claim to have been there at that time two of which claim to have known somebody who was there at that time and so it it just screams at you from the gospels that this is an authentic account this is an authentic witness this kind of detail is fairly rare when it comes to writings in ancient literature, it's especially rare in a fictional narrative. Mm. So it, it, it defies the idea that this is fiction. And we talked about Lewis earlier, and he was famous for saying he knows fiction, and the Gospels are certainly not fiction. Um, so they were demanding of themselves a level of detail that wasn't necessary. They didn't have to do that. If they were making up a narrative, they're inventing a story, none of this would be required. 
uh, it w- people would have accepted it with a lot less detail. So they're they're actually requiring of themselves something more than anybody else. Uh, and then why would they do all that only to invent the other things, the bigger things, the miraculous right. healings and ideas that that the Jewish culture didn't think of? These these were brand new. The idea that a, a singular Messiah was going to die, rise from the dead, and provide salvation not just to Israel but to the nations. This was not something that was being written about. You know, Eric talks about how you how the Old Testament foreshadows that, but a lot of the Jewish discussions at the time were not about this. They weren't thinking in this way. So these authors are either the most brilliant authors of this time frame, coming up with ideas, spiritual ideas that no one had ever thought of before, which I don't think anybody's willing who's skeptical of the, the Gospels is going to credit them with that level of intelligence. But they would either have to be that, or they would have to be reporting exactly what they saw and what had happened. And we, I mentioned this parsimonious account, and I was watching a debate a while back when I wrote this chapter, and this was the skeptic's argument, was he, he was only interested in what makes the most sense. What's, what's the e- most common denominator that would make, this mo- make the most sense? And when you look at the details in the Gospels, when you look at all these things, you, I, what makes the most sense is not that they're genius authors. They may be, but it's not that they they had the best writing ability of any first century author to uh, exist prior to them. It's that they were accounting something true mm. and they're just relaying what happened. That's the most parsimonious. And so when we, we look at that sort of objection, like, oh, I think the, the resurrection or the miracles, it's too complicated. It, 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 that's most likely invented. Not if you actually take the time with the gospels. If you take the time with the gospels and you see how much detail is actually there, the in, the insertion of all the miraculous events makes it much more complicated. Yeah, it fact, doesn't, you, it's not easy at all. In fact, you write this. If Jesus, and this is from, the, again, the book Faith Examined, edited by my guest Clark Bates, and this is your chapter, Clark, you write, if Jesus is who he claimed to be in the Gospels, both the narrative of Israel in the Hebrew Bible and the spread of Christianity after his death makes sense. If not, or if he is not, nothing makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing does, right? If he hasn't risen from the dead, nothing makes sense. So the resurrection, a lot of people go, oh, I can't believe in a resurrection. Miracles don't happen. Ladies and gentlemen, you're living in a miracle. This universe exploded into being out of nothing. (laughs) If Genesis 1-1 is true, every other verse in the Bible is at least possible. And Phil Fernandez in this book points out that Genesis 1-1 does appear to be true. So if the greatest miracle has occurred, then lesser miracles are indeed possible. And by the way, miracles have to be rare if they're going to get our attention. If people were resurrected from the dead all the time, the resurrection of Jesus would mean nothing to us, right? I mean, you, if, if you go to somebody, you go, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two <laughs> weeks ago. You know, you'd go, okay. Not much it's got, yeah, it's got to be a rare event. Well, Clark, I can't thank you enough for the foresight you had and the honor you bestowed not only on me, but our entire ministry and all the people that have contributed to CIA and all the donors who continually contribute to this ministry by pulling together this book. Again, friends, the book is called Faith Examine, New Arguments for Persistent Questions, Essays and Honors in Honor of Dr. Frank Turek and you, ladies and gentlemen, because this ministry wouldn't exist without you and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without you. So Clark... Uh, wonderful work. Uh, it's There's great stuff in this book, friends. It's well beyond anything I've written. Uh, and uh, so it's it's just adding to your arsenal of arguments for Christianity. Uh, Clark, where can people learn more about you if they want to learn what you're doing? 
Um, well, I'm currently, as you say, in the UK working on my PhD. So uh, I, most of what I do anymore is just you might see me on Facebook or on Twitter or X, whatever mm-hmm. it's, whatever it goes by now. <laughs> right. um, you can see if you just look up my name, Clark Bates, it should come up at some point. Um, there was, I used to run an apologetics ministry called Exegesus, which was E-X-E-J-E-S-U-S. Now, I had put that uh, sort of to bed during the PhD because it requires so much of my time. But if you go on Facebook and you type in that word, exegesis, I believe the backlog is still has a Facebook page. And you can go there right. and you can click on some of the old articles and some apologetics material there. But you can follow me there and you can always contact me by private message if you have questions or want some better explanations that maybe you read about in the book or other things. Great. Well, we're so encouraged by what you've done and the fact that you're in full-time ministry as well as all the people in this book are. So thank you again, Clark. Really appreciate it, brother. All right, that's Clark Bates, ladies and gentlemen. Again, the book is called Faith Examined. Uh, Check the book out. You're going to enjoy it. I am, and Lord willing, we will see you here next week. God bless.